All right. Good morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and uh, look at getting into our study of Daniel here this morning. I'll open us up in a word of prayer and we can get started. Dearest Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning and Lord, we just praise you for uh, this opportunity that we have as a body of believers to come together to study your word, to be in fellowship with one another, Lord, to worship you, to give you praises. And we thank you, Lord, for the time that we can congregate and that we can just be together. And we just pray, Lord, that you would bless this time. Pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we look through these uh, verses in Daniel. We thank you, Lord, for the prophecy that you gave uh, to your prophet Daniel. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that this reveals to us of things that happened in the past and things that we know will come in the future. And we just uh, look forward to uh, your exciting plans, Lord, for the world and for our future as we spend eternity with you in glory. Thank you, Lord, again for this time and pray that you would bless us now. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 11 in your Bibles with me this morning. We're getting very close to the end. What page number? Uh, It's page one on my notes. (laughs) We're getting very close to the end of the book of Daniel, um, if you've noticed. In the 11th chapter, we've been seeing the final revelation given to the prophet Daniel as he's around 85 years of age. At this point in time, he's retired from public service, and he's now spending his days laboring over the welfare and his concern for the Jewish people. Daniel's been mourning over them because he's been concerned that they haven't yet returned to the land, even though by his understanding of previous prophecies, they should have done so. That 70-year time frame has come and gone. King Cyrus had decreed that they could return to the land and rebuild, and yet most of the people had not yet gone back. And they had decided to stay in the Babylonian area, now ruled by the Medo-Persians. They had adopted many aspects of the Babylonian and the Persian lifestyles. So Daniel is somewhat confused, and God knows that Daniel's confused. Daniel doesn't understand all that's going on. Daniel doesn't understand why they haven't gone back. Um, because the situation that Israel is in now has not yet been fully revealed to Daniel, so he doesn't understand it all. So this vision given to Daniel, starting really in chapter 10, uh, where chapter 10 served as the narrative background for the vision, um, and the chapter started off by saying in verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. And this verse here serves really as the synopsis for the next three chapters concerning this final vision given to Daniel and the message that was contained within it. And we've seen from this that there are really three things true about this message. We see in this, this one verse. First of all, it says that it was true says that it was filled with great conflict, and it says that Daniel understood it. It was true because it was the word of God. An angel was sent to reveal to Daniel the truth 
that had already been determined concerning Israel's future. God had this all planned out. He just had not revealed it yet to Israel. There was no way that it would not come to pass. There was great conflict because the message isn't a cheery message. It is filled with a picture of Israel's future being one of wars, being struggles, conflicts, persecutions, abominations. There was much that still needed to happen in Israel that was being shared here and given to Daniel to understand. And that brings us to the third thing I mentioned, his understanding. Daniel finally gets it after this point. He understood what God was telling him. In previous visions, God had revealed things to Daniel but he didn't finally fully get it until this one. And that's not really Daniel's fault. It hadn't all been revealed to him yet. He didn't fully understand that even though the 70 years were complete, the days of hardship for Israel were not over, not by a mile. What Daniel is going to understand here, and what we get to understand as well, is that Israel's existence from Daniel's time all the way until the coming of Messiah to establish his kingdom upon the earth is going to be filled with conflict at the hands of Gentile nations. And that's what the angel reveals to him and to us as well. Now, so far in chapter 11, we've seen the first 400 or so years of this. And we looked um, through the history of the first 30 verses of chapter 11. And you'll remember... From our last study that I made an attempt at getting us all the way through 35 verses last week, but we fell five verses short of that goal. We made it all the way up to the last historical ruler that we have on our list, and we were talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. We made it through the verses about the Persians, which was easy because there were only like one or two of those, and we talked a little bit about Alexander the Great. And then we spent the majority of our time going over the history of the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic Wars as they went back and forth, north to south, Syria to Egypt, back and back again, right over the top of Israel. And the concentration and the focus on those wars is because of their relationship to Israel. And it was during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, who took over after Seleucus Philopater, that we had to stop in our last study. So we're going to pick up again, and I'll backtrack just a couple verses to verse 29. We made it all the way through 30 last time, but just for some context and some flow, let's look at verse 29 again. We're said, at the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. So in this verse, Antiochus Epiphanes it's talking about here, he makes another attempt to try to take the south. He builds up his army and he comes again. And the last time that he did this, he had some success in that last campaign, but, by the, but this time he will have no success. And we see why in verse 30. Verse 30 says, for the ships of Kittim will come against him. And if you remember, the ships of Kittim, this was a reference to the Romans. The Romans had gotten involved. They were starting to become a power at this point in time. So they come in to the aid of the south as Antiochus comes down to this particular battle, Um, And this is a battle against his nephew, who was the king of the south at this time, and he's humiliated by the Romans. And this is where we mentioned just at the very end of our time last time, the Roman commander draws a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes, and he asks him whether he was going to leave or whether he wanted to fight against Rome. 
And he draws this circle around Antiochus and he tells him, well, I need your decision before you leave that circle. Well, you can imagine as the king of a nation, that would be a pretty humiliating experience, right? So Antiochus wasn't prepared to fight Rome, so he leaves. And where does, again, does he pass through on his way back home? He goes through Israel. So the verse continues, therefore, he will be disheartened and he will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And this time when he comes back, he makes his way back through Israel, things get really bad. And we saw a lot of this when we were back in our study of chapter 8, talking about Antiochus Epiphanes there. But he loses it. He has no regard for God. He has no regard for his people. And he sides with those who are apostate. If you remember, one of the things that Antiochus had wanted to do was Hellenize the people of Israel, make them into good Greeks. And they would be the ones who forsake the Holy Covenant. So as we come to verse 31, this attack against Israel had already started years before, but now he brings it to a head. So look with me at verse 31. I mean, this is our first new material. And forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. And by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. So the time for influence is over. This time he desecrates the temple. He's not just there this time telling the Jews, oh, I don't want you to do this. He's now desecrating the temple. He takes away the sacrifices. He institutes idolatry to the Greek gods in the temple. The abomination of desolation here is in reference to setting up an idol to Zeus in the temple. As a part of that idol worship, he has pigs sacrificed on the altar, and he makes the priests of God eat the meat of the pigs. He kills all the children who have been circumcised. We talked about this back in chapter 8. Any child that was circumcised at this point in time, they were killed, they were hung around their mother's neck, the mother was paraded through the streets of the city, and they were thrown over a cliff. He burns all of the copies of the law that he can find. He actually is able to convince many of the Jews to join him in these wicked and vile acts against God, against their own people, by his smooth words. This was one of the darkest times in Jewish history. But as bad as you can, we can point to this and say this was a horrible time in Jewish history, this is not the darkest time in Jewish history. That time is coming later and will be referenced at the end of the chapter and described in detail in the book of Revelation. But here, Antiochus Epiphanes, as we see what he accomplished, what he did, it's easy to see how he's actually a type of the Antichrist who is yet to come. He does many of the same things that Israel still has to look forward to in their future. And when I use the phrase look forward to, I don't mean in a positive way, but they're looking forward at that time. But even in this dark time, there are still those who remain faithful. It continues on in verse 33, but the people, or verse 32, sorry, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. So there will be an uprising. There will be some who are faithful to God and will rise up against this. Against this, back again, talking about Antiochus and what he did. 
yet they will pay a price for this. You've probably heard the, ter- the name Judas of Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus was one of the priests of the temple who refused to succumb to the Hellenization that was going on. And he revolted along with his sons and along with their followers, and they were able to restore and cleanse the temple. And yet many of them died in the process. Verse 34 says, Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. The rest of the people, those who at first took no part in the revolt, when they saw which way the wind was blowing, they saw that the Maccabean revolt was actually working, they then join in the fight, as people tend to do, right? You wait until you see what side might be winning, and then you give your allegiance. So they joined with an attitude of hypocrisy, not genuine faith or commitment to God, but more along a selfish line of they simply wanted the Greeks to be ousted. They wanted their own independence again. So this really was a very sad time in the history of Israel. And this is what Daniel is being told that Israel is going to have to go through before the end times. And this is not a pretty picture. If Daniel was in mourning for his people before, what do you suppose a message like this would do to him? He had to be wondering why all this had to happen. Well, in verse 35, the angel tells him why. Verse 35 says, And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. So the nation of Israel is going to continue to suffer, continue to go through times when even the godly will fall. Why? Because God is using this time to refine them, to purge sin from among them, to make them pure. And this has always been the intention. The time of judgment that they are going through, that Daniel is hearing about here, is someday going to bring them through to saving faith. Now we have to understand that verse 35 serves as a transitional verse. There's another gap in time with this prophecy that begins with verse 35. Now, we previously had a gap in time between verses 2 and 3. We didn't talk much about this being a gap at that point, but there were 150 years between the time when Ahasuerus was on the throne and then Alexander the Great came on the scene. We talked a little bit about how the Greeks and the Persians hated each other during that time. But there were other kings that came between Ahasuerus and Alexander the Great that we didn't talk about. Now here, the angel's words in verse 35 take us from what he's just told Daniel about Antiochus Epiphanes and will take us through to what point in time? It says here the end time because that is the appointed time. And what he's saying here is that in the time between this ruler, whom we know as Antiochus Epiphanes, and the end time, where the, uh, when the next events coming in verse 36 and following will occur, Israel will be refined, they will be purged in order to make them pure. It will be a continual time of discipline at the hands of Gentile nations, which, we talked, which we've talked about uh, many times before in our study. Throughout their existence, the same pattern was always followed. God had to discipline them, bring them low, right? We've talked about that, that circular existence that Israel had. Things would be going good, they'd have great blessings, then they would start to sin, then God would bring judgment upon them. 
After a period of time, they would cry out to God and repent, and then God would restore their blessings. And this circular pattern would continue in their history. So God had to discipline them. He had to bring them low before they would cry out to him for salvation. This was part of the pattern that they were going through with the Babylonian captivity. Well, that same pattern is still going on for them even today. They are under the discipline of God. In the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the writer talks about the purpose of God's discipline on his children. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 7 says, It is for discipline that you endure. God God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. What is the purpose of discipline? To bring those who have erred, who have sinned, back into fellowship. God disciplines his children. It's true of those of us in the church, as the writer of Hebrews is talking about. And it's true of his chosen nation of Israel as well. The idea is that it brings us back to him. It restores that fellowship. In the case of Israel, the discipline that they are enduring even today and to the time of the end will ultimately result in their national salvation as, those, as a nation who has been chosen by God. They will be brought to saving faith at the times of the great tribulation. And it's because of the purging, the refining, and the purification that is even going on as a part of that even today. And this is what the angel is telling Daniel about here. It will continue on until that appointed time. And and that's a time that is still yet to come, even from our perspective. So what we have here now is this transition from the past. Of course, to Daniel, it wasn't past history, right? Daniel's, Daniel's standing here, for instance, and the angel's telling him about all these things that are going to happen in the future, right? Well, all these things happen, and now we get to our point where we're standing here. We can look back at things that have already happened, but there's still an element of it that is yet to happen. And so that's the perspective, and that's where we are today. Daniel didn't know about the four future kings coming in Persia, of which Ahasuerus was the central figure. He didn't know the name of Alexander the Great, who conquered the world in three short years. He didn't know about the Greek kingdom being divided up into four parts after Alexander's death. And he didn't know that two of those parts, the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt and the Seleucid kingdom in Syria, would play a great role in the history of Israel as they battled back and forth across their lands. He didn't know about the two Antiochuses, Antiochus the Great, who built up the Syrian army in the north, and his youngest son, Antiochus Epiphanes, who became the despicable king that first established the abomination of desolation in the temple in Jerusalem. These are all events and people that we know because we look back into history and we can see these things map out to what the angel is telling Daniel here. Because these events all occurred just as God told Daniel that they would. And as we study this chapter, I emphasize that's really what we should see in this chapter. As we look at God said that this would happen, 
And hundreds of years later, it happened exactly like he said it would happen. But now we come to verse 36. And that history aspect of this all changes. God's sovereignty doesn't change, but the history aspect of it changes. Everyone agrees that verses 2 through 35 are done, that they've already occurred. But not everyone agrees about the events in verses 36 to 45. And that's where the debate picks up again. The who, the where, the when. They're all in dispute among scholars, different kinds of scholars and people that believe to have different views, right? It's those verses that we're going to turn to now and begin to take a look at with the rest of the time that we have. So take a look with me at verse 36. Verse just starts off with saying, then the king will do as he pleases. And the immediate question to be asked here is, what king is this? And this starts the confusion, right? Although I don't believe it's confusing at all, but as we go through here, I think we'll see that. Now, some take it to be an extension of the previous verses, and they attribute this with Antiochus Epiphanes again, go right along with saying this is his next action. But in actuality, that's not the case. This isn't Antiochus Epiphanes, although we've seen previously that Antiochus Epiphanes was this type of man. Remember, we've talked about how historically accurate the events from verses 2 through 35 have been and how they match up with these exact events in history. The funny thing is, when we get to verses 36 and following, that accuracy disappears. When we get to these verses, we no longer see that detail-for-detail comparison of what's going on especially as it relates to Antiochus Epiphanes. If you try to match up these events with Antiochus Epiphanes uh, and the facts that we know about him from history, we don't see things correlate any longer. And so the question that has to be answered is, why? Why does that recognizable detail suddenly stop at this verse? And the answer is simple. It's because these events in verses 36 through 45 haven't occurred yet. It's because we don't have the history to look back upon and see how they played out because for us, just like for Daniel, these events are historical, I'll call them historical because I know that they're going to happen, but they are historical depictions of events that will take place in the future. This is prophecy that is yet future even for us. And so, just like we saw back in chapter two, and in chapter 7, and in chapter 8, and in chapter 9, and even earlier in this chapter, we're going to see that there's a gap in time here. Between the events leading up to verse 35, and those starting here in verse 36, there's an indeterminate amount of time. And quite frankly, even today, we don't know the amount of time between these events because we're living in that gap. We're in it right now. The king in verse 36, the willful king, as he's been called because of this verse, is a king that has not yet been on the scene, at least as far as we know. It's possible that he's alive today, but we don't know that for sure. He's the fifth of the great rulers that are presented in this chapter. And if you had that handout from last week, I had marked on the handout uh, the five, they were, they were bolded on there. Ahasuerus, Alexander the Great, Antiochus the Great, and Antiochus Epiphanes were the other four. Those were the four, first four great rulers. And remember, that's a great, I use the word great, not because they were 
wonderful people, but because they had absolute authority. They had full authority. And in the case of the fifth ruler, he will have even more authority than any of those others ever had. This fifth ruler, we saw him as the little horn in chapter 7. And then as the prince who is to come in chapter 9. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the apostle John sees him as the beast in Revelation 13. And we probably best know him by the name Antichrist, which John uses in his first epistle. He's the final ruler of the final great worldly kingdom on earth, and he encompasses all the worst attributes of all these worldly rulers that came before him. We've moved through the Babylonian Empire. Daniel at this time is in the Persian Empire, and we've seen events that have taken us through the Greek Empire. And now, as we see the Antichrist come to the forefront of the message here, we move into the Roman Empire well into the final future revived stage of the Roman Empire, the iron mixed with clay stage that we saw all the way back when we were studying Daniel chapter 2. The Antichrist is the ruler who will be in charge during that final seven-year period of Daniel's 70 weeks, that last 70th week uh, that we talked about, otherwise known as the tribulation. And there are a number of things that the Bible tells us will be true of him during his reign, and we'll look at a number of them as we move through this section. Now, the final verses of the chapter are broken up into two really main parts. The first part is in verses 36 through 39, and they show the character of this man. And that's what we'll spend our time looking at today. The second part, verses 40 to 45, show the events that will occur during his reign and lead us right up to his end, which we'll see next time in our next study. And so we'll start by looking at his character. So look with me at verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. There are a number of things that will be true about the Antichrist when he comes on the scene and we really see the first three of them here in this verse. We start off with the phrase that we've already looked at at the beginning of the verse, the king will do as he pleases. Now we've seen with all of the major kings and kingdoms that we've looked at um, throughout Daniel that they have had authority upon the earth in one way or another. In fact, if you remember back in chapter two, God gave Daniel this message Uh, about Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 2.37, it said, You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Nebuchadnezzar had absolute authority and was really the only king to have that kind of absolute authority. He was the kingdom. He was the ruler on the earth at that point in time. All the rest of the kingdoms also had authority, but to a lesser degree in the individual heads of those kingdoms. But their kingdoms still ruled the earth. Now, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, that authority to a single ruler, to a single man, comes back to him. You may may remember from previous lessons that part of what he will do when he comes on the scene is consolidate power among 10 other 
kings. And they will eventually give up all rule and all authority to him. He will have the authority. He will have the means. He will have the power to do whatever it is that he pleases. Now, there's two things about this authority that will be true. How he has this authority. How does he get this authority on the earth? Well, first of all, he has this authority because God gives this authority to him. Just like we saw with Nebuchadnezzar, God gave him that authority. It was reiterated in chapter 5 to Belshazzar when Daniel reminded him of God's sovereignty to set rulers upon the earth. And then the first Persian ruler, Darius, was given a firsthand, firsthand example of this same truth in chapter 6. It is God who is in charge. And anyone that comes to power is put into position by God. Almost every ruler that exists could probably use a reminder of this from time to time. And this was explicitly spelled out in in chapter 4, verse 17, where it said that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. So this authority that he has, first of all, It's authority from God to rule absolutely. But there's another power that also gives him authority on earth as well that we haven't seen with the other rulers. Satan gives him his authority as well. He gives authority to the Antichrist. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 13. We see a good picture of the Antichrist in this chapter. We'll read, we'll start in verse 1. Revelation 13, starting in verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. So here we have the Antichrist, or the beast coming. We looked at this when we were studying back in chapter 7, where we saw his appearance here having the same, some of the same characteristics of each of the beasts that came up out of the sea in Daniel's vision. But look at what it says next in verse 2. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. Um, skip down to verse 4. It says, They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? So, the dragon here that we're talking about, this is Satan. The beast is the Antichrist. Satan gives the Antichrist his authority. Now, we might ask, Well, what authority does Satan have? What authority does Satan have to give? Well, remember, Satan has been given authority over the world. From a spiritual standpoint, he has been put in charge of the world in general. And we've already seen spiritual warfare in action back in chapter 10, right? Where the angel was prohibited from coming to Daniel for three weeks because of a demon that stopped him from coming. And I don't believe that there would be any way a demon could withstand an angel for three weeks unless the demon had been given the authority to do so. And that's what we saw in chapter 10. So the authority that Satan has, he gives to the Antichrist. Now, 
I think we also have to ask, how is that important as well? Because what more authority can Satan give him that God can't give him? If God is the one that gives him authority, then how can Satan give him more authority? And I think the answer to that has to do with his absolute depravity. His absolute wholehearted fall into the worldly system, the satanic system that is over the earth. It's the system that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. It's the depraved mindset of the world that is totally and completely against God and anything that is holy and righteous and moral. In other words, not only will Antichrist have the unimpeded authority to act and do anything, but all that he pleases to do, his very heartfelt wishes, will be to do anything and everything against the will and the wishes of God. It will be his mission in life to oppose everything that God has declared to be good and right. And in doing so, he falls headlong into the same mindset that is found in Satan himself. He will seek to do nothing but oppose God with all of his might. You look back at a ruler like Nebuchadnezzar. He was a man that did what he wanted. But then at, the la- at least in one point in time, he changes his mind, right? He has shown the error of his ways. Darius, the same thing. He does what he wants. He sets himself up. Nobody can pray to anyone else but me. But then he changes his mind. The Antichrist, there's not going to be any of that for him. His mind will not be changed. He will not come to a realization that it is truly God who is in charge, he will reject that outright and he will have the backing of the devil himself on his side. And we need to keep in mind the scariest of thoughts here, that he will be allowed to do it. Nebuchadnezzar had the advantage of God doing something miraculous to show him the error of his ways. Darius, the same thing. The Antichrist will be allowed to do this. God is not going to interfere He will have the authority from both God and Satan to carry out what he's going to carry out. Now, that doesn't mean that God will make him do this, but God will not stop him from doing it until the very end of the tribulation period. And that's really seen here in the next point that we have in this verse. We see his arrogance. It says, he will exalt and magnify himself above every God. And you see the arrogance that this man will have. He will exalt himself, magnify himself above every God. He will consider himself as more important than any God. You take a look again at his predecessors, those that came before him. Many of them did similar things, right? We talked about how they would count themselves among the gods. They would declare themselves to be a god, but they would count themselves among the gods, right? They wouldn't dare deny the other gods or consider themselves as above them. Even Antiochus Epiphanes had an idol to Zeus set up in the temple. But this man will not even recognize another god. Turn with me over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I alluded to this verse earlier. This is where, where two of the names for the Antichrist come from. But here, Paul is telling the Thessalonians what the signs of the end will be. 
And he says in verse three of Second Thessalonians 2, he says, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So here's, here's our man. This is when he comes on the scene and he goes on in verse four, it says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And you see what he does here. He not only elevates himself above the worship of false gods, but he takes the seat of the one true living God. He's attacking all religion and he claims to be the only God of a monotheistic religion unto himself. And this is how arrogant this man is going to be, how far into his own depravity he's going to go. One thing to notice here also is the word opposes um, in 2 Thessalonians uh, 2.4 at the beginning of the verse. That's a word that can also be translated adversary or enemy and is used to reference Satan himself at times. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.14 uses it. And I don't believe it's a coincidence that a characteristic ascribed to Satan is also ascribed to this man as well. We could say that he is in physical form what Satan is in spiritual form. He will be the ultimate adversary. Well, what else does it say back in verse 36? It says, he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. His extreme arrogance leads to his abomination. He will not leave well enough alone. He must speak out against God. He will be the ultimate heretic. The things he say will be monstrous. They will be horrible. They will, um, they will be things unfit to say about anyone, much less the almighty God of the universe. We've already seen some of this back when we talked about him again in chapter 7 when we saw in verse eight that he had a mouth uttering great boasts, and then down in verse 25, it says that he will speak out against the most high. And it even says there that he will make alterations in times and in law. And we talked then about how that was indicating that he will attempt to supersede all that God has determined to be good. He will have absolutely no fear of God. And as we saw in the first part of the verse, he will do what he pleases, whatever seems right to him. This is the moral character that he's bringing into his decision-making. You pair a man with that type of absolute authority, with that depth of depravity, and you see how much trouble the world is going to be in at this time. At the end of the verse, we see how long it will last. It says, and he will prosper until the end we start over. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Until the indignation is finished. What's this referring to? This is the time when God is finished with his plan to refine, purge, and purify Israel. When will that be? That's at the end of that 70th week the great seven-year tribulation. That will be at the end point of when the Antichrist will be allowed to prosper in his blasphemy. And really, most of these characteristics of his that we are seeing will be limited to the last half of that week, that three and a half year at the end when all things will get really bad. Now, once again, this is all part of the plan to chastise Israel. 
to bring them to the point where they will come to saving faith and the believing nation will inherit the kingdom of God. Remember, back in chapter nine, if you want to turn a page or two back, back in chapter nine, verse 24, when we were talking about the 70 weeks, it says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. The reign of this man will be the final part of these 70 weeks, 70 weeks that are being used to bring about all these things culminating in the, king, in the coming kingdom along with the coming king. Turn with me over to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32. Here in this chapter, Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah is prophesying from God concerning this same time that we're talking about in Daniel. Jeremiah 32, down in verse 37. This is the time in the future at the end of these 70 weeks. Uh, Yeah, so start in verse 37. It says, Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great, what? Indignation. I don't know what your translation says, but mine says indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Jeremiah is talking about the time of restoration, not after just 70 years, as Daniel was thinking. This is after the entire chastised period by God. They will have one heart, one way, always fearing the Lord. This is the time of the kingdom. Look down at verse 43 of Jeremiah 32. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. And this verse gives me chills when I read it. Because I think this says it all right here. God brings about this disaster but he will ultimately bring about good for them that he's promising to them. Even though there will be this man, this horrible, monstrous man who will be in charge of the world and he will blaspheme the Most High God and he will do anything that he pleases, God will still, shortly after that time, restore his people to himself. What a marvelous testimony to the faithfulness of God. Well, look at the end of verse 36 in Daniel 11. And we are going to get through verse 39, just so you know. I question these things myself sometimes. The end of verse 36 in Daniel 11. That which is decreed will be done. This phrase here just covers a multitude of things that we could talk about. But this is saying here that this man will come on the scene. He will be this way. He will have this character. This truth that the angel is telling Daniel will come about. But it's also a reminder that everything that God has determined, has planned out, has promised will happen just as he says that it will happen. There is nothing that God has promised that won't come about. And that includes bringing the nation of Israel through this storm and having them emerge as his purified nation. Well, we continue on with the character of this man in verse 37. It just keeps getting better and better. And we further see the element 
of his own self-exaltation and magnification. It says in verse 37, and he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Now, there are three specific things that are said here, and then there's a summarization at the end of the verse, and these are all talking about his relationship to other gods, including the Almighty God. It first of all says he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, and this would be the gods of his own people. Well, who are his people? The Romans, right? He comes from Rome in some way, shape, or form. So these would be the Roman gods, keeping in mind that he's from that Roman Empire. Some translations indicate that this, that this verse here, or this part of the verse, is referring to God with a capital G, and that it indicates that it, uh, he may be Jewish, but I don't think that's likely. A better translation is that these are plural gods uh, with a small g. And he will not honor the gods of his fathers um, that they honored. He has no respect for even that tradition. In most cases, people grow up with at least a respect for their family religious practices and their family traditions. Now, for the most part, uh, we're talking about non-believers when we say that, right? The general, that's the general pattern that people have. We know that as believers, when we become saved, we are to put off all false religion, right? Even those we grew up with that might have been part of our family heritage, we are not to honor other gods, period. But that's not really what's in view here. This is more of a sense of the traditional respect that most men have for the gods of their fathers. That's common among men. What this is saying about him is that he won't even have that basic traditional value about him. He will have no regard for that. And then it goes a step further. It says he will show no regard for the desire of women. Now, what this, what's this talking about? Well, some say it's referring to his lack of respect for women, that it will, he will put them down or he doesn't like them. Some say it's a reference to him being homosexual. Possibly, uh, some say that it possibly indicates a perversion of his that means that he has no family association or no basic respect for his mother or sister or you know, someone in the family. But I don't think that really fits the context here. I believe in the context of what we're dealing with in this verse, th- this verse is talking about him not having respect for gods of any kind. And so this is another reference to that kind of worship. Now, throughout the book, throughout the book of Daniel, we've seen evidence of phrases pop up that would have special significance to the Jewish readers in the book. We've seen the reference to the beautiful land, meaning the land of, of Jerusalem, or the, meaning Israel or Jerusalem, to the stars of heaven, which was a reference to the Jews. In our last study, we saw the jewel of the kingdom, which was Jerusalem as well. I believe this is another reference that would have had significant meaning to the Jewish people. To the, to the women of Israel, it was a well-known common desire to be the mother of the Messiah, The one who would give birth to the Messiah would be truly blessed indeed. And this was a very strong desire among the women of Israel to be the one that gave birth to the Messiah. And so I would understand the desire of women here to be a messianic reference. This was the desire of women to be the mother of the Messiah. So what we have here is that not only does he have no regard for his own gods, but he certainly has no regard for for the Christ, for the Messiah of Israel either. And then to complete the picture, we have the final phrase, nor will he show regard for any other God. 
And this covers everything else, right? His own gods, the God of Israel, any other God. He has regard for none of them because he's too absorbed in himself. And then we have the summary for he will magnify himself above them all. Once again, that arrogance of his shows through, that self-absorbed attitude that he will have. I believe that he will come across as probably an atheist at first. He has no regard for any gods, right? He's, he's, he's put all that silliness away from him. He will have no affinity for religion at all. And in the world today, it's getting easier and easier to believe that the world would embrace such a man. Oh, I don't want somebody that has all that baggage. He can't have a relationship to this religion, that religion, whatever. I just want someone that's just not going to leave all that aside. Right? We see that. We see that, that people would embrace that today. In many cases, we can't even ask someone their religious preferences today. You can't interview someone for a job and ask their religious, strike up a religious conversation with them. How long will it be before we can't ask political candidates things about their religious background? But we definitely see the world going in the direction where religion is supposed to be less and less of a factor, and he will exemplify this. But there will be something that he devotes all of his time and resources to, much like to a God. Look at verse 38. But instead he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. Fortresses here is power or even warfare. This is a personification of war. He will honor the very concept of war. He will be power hungry. That's what he's going to devote his time toward, the idea of conflict and conquest. The idea of gaining complete and absolute control and then there will be none to stop him from doing it. How complete will his power be? Well, in chapter seven, we saw that the fourth kingdom, the Roman kingdom, will be so powerful that it says in Daniel 7.23, it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And who is at the helm of that kingdom? The gods of fortresses. The man that worships the gods of fortresses right here. Just as others devote all their money and time into their gods, he will devote it all to his war machine. Gold, silver, costly stones, treasures. That's where it's all going to the end that he will devour the whole earth, tread it down, and crush it. A complete takeover. This is a departure from his fathers. They did not know this God of war. They had respect for other gods. They were false gods, but they were not completely bent on total destruction like this man will be. He will spend his entire resources focused upon one thing, waging all-out war, and it will be a war with God and anyone who follows after him. That's what's in view here. And in the next verse, verse 39, and he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. We see here then that he goes on the, the offensive. The foreign God that helps him is this war machine that he's created. It's the God of fortresses. It's not a force of deterrence or safety that he builds. Although 
I would imagine that he would probably build it under that false pretense, right? I'm going to, oh, we're putting all this money and all this effort in, into building a deterrence force, a peacekeeping force. But ultimately, it will be used for domination against the strongest of fortresses. If you're like me, when you read through all these things, you ask yourself, where's the United States in all this? What happens to the United States in all this, right? From our perspective today, we think, how could this all go on without the United States not having some kind of involvement? Well, I tend to think this might be our involvement right here, or the United States' involvement right here. Maybe the U.S. is the first strong fortress that falls to his war machine. Maybe they, and I use the word they because for us, those that are believers here, we won't be around when this happens. So I'll say they. Maybe they get taken out first. We can't really say, but this will be the ultimate in terms of power, authority, and strength, and he will, have, he will have his allies, and he will reward them for choosing his side. He will give those that acknowledge him authority, he'll give them land, they will be rewarded for their loyalty to him. Loyalty is the price that they will pay. They will gain great wealth, but they will sell themselves out to the Antichrist and his system. This will quickly lead to followers of his, as the people of the world soon see which way the wind is blowing here, they will eagerly fall in line, willingly pay that price. Be loyal and get rewarded. Remain opposed and get crushed under his might. Those will be the two choices, the only two choices that people will have, and it will become a black and white choice. So this shows the character of this man, the Antichrist, who will be in charge of the world during the final days before the coming of the kingdom. And in verses 40 through 45, we will see some of the details of the conflicts that will occur during that time, but we'll wait and save that for next week. So um, before we close for today, turn with me back to the book of Revelation real quick. I just want you to see some of the parallels between what we've just seen in Daniel and what was revealed to John in his vision as well. We stopped in verse four before, but we'll read a few verses past that. Um, This will just take a minute. Verse four, and they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And we mentioned earlier, the dragon is Satan. The beast is the Antichrist. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And you see how this fits exactly with what we've just seen, what we've been reading. There is the absolute authority, the ability and the willingness to wage war, the blasphemy against God, all within that 42-month or three-and-a-half-year time frame. And there's the theme of the vision in Daniel. There is the effect on the people of God and these saints that are living through this tribulation. So I just wanted to point that out. Anyway, let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you once again, and Lord, we give you praise for uh, these details that we have, these, these events that we know are in the future, Lord. They are, um, they are frightening, they are horrific, things that are coming um, in the world at some point in time, Lord, and, 
And we know that uh, you have this all planned out and this is all worked out for uh, certain purposes and we praise you for that, Lord. But Lord, I thank you that, that as your church, as believers today, um, that we will not be here for this, that uh, Lord, we will, you will come and take us uh, before this all happens. I praise you for that. And I just pray, Lord, that you would make it a burden on our hearts to be sharing the gospel with people today, Lord. Um, anyone that lives today does not have to live through this. We don't know when these things will happen, Lord. We know that they're all in your timing, but uh, we know that no one has to live through this, Lord, if they come to saving faith uh, in you. And Lord, I just praise you for that. I thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. I just pray, Lord, that it would be a burden on our hearts to be sharing that with people all around us each day. Lord, I just pray that you'd be with us now um, as we go into the next hour. Pray that you would be with uh, Josh as he brings us the word once again. Pray that that uh, you would open up our, our hearts and our minds to your word and that we would worship you, Lord, and bring glory to you with all that we do. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.